I don't know why I'm preaching the message I'm preaching this morning. I didn't want to preach this message. I didn't plan on preaching this message until about three days ago. And uh, I don't understand it, why I'm preaching it. It doesn't have anything to do with anything <laughs> that we usually hear at the IFFB. And it's, it's not a scolding sermon. It's just a sermon trying to encourage you in the Lord. And um, I think we've had a lot of those kind of sermons this time. And so I really, the first thing I was asked when I walked in the building by Brother Mike, Brother Mike said to me, David, how's your conscience? And that's exactly, I'm going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And uh, so I knew right then, you know, well, Brother Mike's in touch. <laughs> so I, I want you to turn with me, will you, please, to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14. And we'll read from that in just a moment. Not long ago, I was in, uh, in fact, two weeks ago, I guess it is now, or yeah, two weeks ago. Uh, we went to the Sword of the Lord conference, Dan and I, and he had to go on down to Florida. So I stayed in uh, uh, North Carolina there, Winston-Salem, where my two granddaughters are both Christian school teachers. And I got to spend time with my grandson-in-law. We're just going to call him my grandson now, okay? But the grandson and my granddaughter, I got to spend time with them. And I always wanted to go up and see uh, Mount Airy. I always wanted to go up to Mayberry, you know. And uh, I, I, liked, uh, I liked Andy, and I liked, I liked the deputy sheriff, Barney. And uh, I, just, I just, I liked Otis. I'm sorry. I, you know, <laughs> you know, I shouldn't, but I know, you know, I read about Otis. Otis was a, a teetotaler, never drank once right. in his life. But he uh, sure, sure could act like one. And I knew what they acted like because I'd been around some of my uncles and and uh, so I knew what that looked like, and he had it down. But he, uh, I liked him. I liked, I liked um, what's the guy's name always threw rocks through windows? Ernest See, you watched it too, didn't you? Okay, <laughs> Ernest T. Bass. I liked all those kind of guys. So I went up to the scenes of the crime, and, and I didn't pay. They, they charge you like 50 bucks to ride in a mobile car, a, 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 a patrol car now, and I'm, I'm not going to pay that. I've, I've seen patrol cars. I've never been inside of the back of one. I've been in the front seat riding with the police, but so far, praise God, I've never been put in the back of a police car. You know, that's not a good thing, all right? You know, just step in here and put their hand on your head and push you in. That's not good. So I've never had that happen yet. Uh, not that I won't. My wife says the way I drive, I deserve to be taken away. But uh, anyway, I had a good time up there. And uh, then after we left, we went to West Plain, White Plains Baptist Church. Uh, I don't know if you know, you know Carl Lackey, you know that name, Carl Lackey. If you don't know Carl Lackey, you ought to know him from the, the film The Burning Hell, if you ever saw that one. He's, he's uh, Abraham, Abraham in, in the uh, uh, paradise, you know, and he's sitting there, and, and um, I've showed that film in my church in California, because it was, you know, everybody was showing it, and people were getting saved, and so I brought it brought it to the church, and I showed it to my church, and they got to that part, and they got to Brother, Brother Lackey sitting on the seat there and talking to, the, to, the, uh, uh, to, to Lazarus, a beggar, and, and he said, he said, uh, Son, remember, thou in thy lifetime hadst thou thy good things. <laughs> and that was all it took. Those California people just lost it right there. That was... The end of the film. I might as well just shut it off because 
They were laughing. They never knew Abraham had a southern accent. But uh, boy, he does. He's from South Judea. I can tell you that for sure. But Carl Lagg is a great man of God, and God used him. Boy, he was fearless. And uh, so I went and saw his grave. And I saw a bunch of other graves there. I noticed something very similar on all of them. They had, if the people had passed away, they had two dates. And between the two dates, they had a dash. Now, I hate to, I hate to scare you with this, but when you get a, you get a little older, like over 70, uh, you start thinking about passing on. Because it's something you've never done before. Now, you know what the Bible says, and you know the promises of God. But still, you know, you're going to have to die by faith just like you live by faith. You know that, right? You're going to have to trust God when you die that the word is true. Just like Jesus trusted his father when he laid himself, when he was laid in the tomb. Because he didn't raise himself by his own power. I always wonder, now, this is my interpretation. If you don't like it, don't share with me because I don't care what you think. Okay? But I believe the faith of the Son of God. Paul said, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think Jesus' faith was trusting his Father after three days to raise him from the grave. Because he put himself in the Father's power. And he trusted God's word. The Old Testament promises that after three days he would rise again. And he laid down in that grave, trusting his Father. And because he rose, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. I'm looking forward more to the resurrection than I am the... Uh, I'm actually looking forward to the return, to the rapture. Uh, because I happen to believe in a rapture. Uh, we were talking the other night about are you pre-roll, mid-roll, or, or, or post-roll? You know, you pray before you eat your roll kind of a thing, and we were talking about that, and I'm pre-everything. If there's something to be pre, I'm pre, okay, just the way it is, and I'm looking for the upper, if, if Paul could look for him, I think it's wise for us to look for him. I think that settles it for me. I don't have to go on all the technical terms and study all the theology. Paul said he could come any moment. I think that's the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, well, but he hasn't. Yeah, well, you're one of those scoffers. Bible told me about. I'd be careful what side I lined up on if I were you. Amen? Because the devil's got his side and God's got his side. I'd be a staying away from God's mocking God's promises. If God said he can come any moment, he'll come any moment. He'll probably come when we least expect him. I know, I know when he's not going to come. When some guy gets on the radio and tells me when he's coming, I know he's not coming then. Yeah, well, anyway, that's, that's known as preaching where I come from, but you don't have to amen me. But all of us live in that dash between those two dates. Now, I know my first date's 1949. Uh, so far, I'm living on borrowed time. The Lord only promised me 70 years, and I'm, I'm past that now. And so I'm, I'm living on borrowed time. If I make it to 80... That'd be wonderful because that means by reason of strength, I might get to four score. So if you're over 80, you ought, you ought to walk up to people over and say, what are you still doing here? You can go to heaven now. It's okay. You know? But I'm teasing about that, all right? Because I know the closer I get to 80, the less I want people teasing me about my age. <laughs> but the truth is, I'm, I'm glad that uh, God gave us a space in which to serve him. And every man is known 
for what he does with that dash between those two dates. A man is known for five things, somebody wrote. He's known for his character. That's who he is. He's known for his conduct. That's what he does. He's known for his conversation. That's what he says. He's known by his creed. That's what he believes. He's known by his contribution. That's what he gives. And all of us have that space between the first date and the last date in which to live. And it's the same thing for every tombstone I've ever seen. Everybody gets the dash. And everybody gets that time to serve God. I think the greatest need of this hour is great men of God. I'm not talking about preachers, although we need more preachers. You know, we get, we get um, uh, chastised a little bit by some guy saying, get you a Timothy. Well, if you'll recall, Paul... Paul found Timothy a convert of somebody else and called him to travel with him. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I have a Timothy. He's sitting right over there. And I expect him to stay true. And I'm going to haunt him if he doesn't. But the truth is uh, that Timothy was a, somebody, somebody else that led to Christ. And Paul met him and challenged him to follow. Uh, and he did. And that's what... Today, the challenge is to follow, and it's hard to find people who are willing to follow. We're so messed up in this. Some of the area that I'm going to talk to you about here, uh, when I get, and I am in the sermon already, so don't be confused, okay? The man we're going to read to you about here in the book of Joshua is a man who only knew one way to serve God. And that was all the way. All the way. Let's read, starting there in verse number uh, 6 of chapter 14 of the book of Joshua. Joshua 14, verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses sware on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. And yet, as yet, I am strong. I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now. For war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore... Give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims are there, that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him, and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because... He wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Father, speak to our hearts today as we think about this man who wholly followed the Lord God and 
Encourage our hearts, Father, to keep on following, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go to Numbers 34, and we're not going to go there for the sake of time, but if you go to Numbers 34, it would explain this story that Caleb is talking about. Uh, Twelve men were chosen of God, men of high character, men of faithfulness. They were chosen by the Lord to be the instruments of God's hands in, in setting out the division of the tribe for the ten and a half tribes on this side of Jordan, what they would possess in the promised land. And so they went out. And of course, we know three of them, those three names that we're familiar with. We know Joshua, we know Eleazar the priest, and we know Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And uh, Caleb, uh, from Numbers 13 and 14, was one of the men sent out to spy out the land, as he mentions in this passage. They return after 40 days, and they have to carry the grapes on a pole between two men. That's how big they are and how big the clusters are. And they, they brag on the land. It's a beautiful land. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. That God is blessed, and they're, they're excited about the land until... They saw the giants that live in the land. And because of the giants, they reported that the cities were walled, the people were strong and great, and giants inhabited the land. Two men stood against that, Joshua and Caleb. Now you would expect Joshua to stand against it because he, in effect, is the, the uh, prince of Israel at this time. He's the next. He's heir to the throne, if you will. So you would expect them to back up Moses and to back up what he said God had told them. But, but Caleb is just one of the guys, if you can put it that way. He's just one of the men. All of them were supposed to have the character and the ability and the faith of Caleb. All of them were expected of God to go out and to see the land and see the giants, but tell the people we are well able to take this land because our God is bigger than the giants of this land. They were expected to do that, but they didn't come back with that report. One man and Joshua stood up, and Caleb said, we are well able. His report said nothing about the giants. His report said everything about God. Amen. Our God is able, and if God is with us, we can destroy the giants. Now, you would think, you pardon me, you would think that God somehow got locked in quarantine during covid because we all kind of, not, not we all, but we all gave up on him. Well, it's, you know, I just heard a fellow in, in Mexico City. That in Mexico City, they shut down his buildings, and he has some big buildings. Bigger than I've ever had, that's for sure. Bigger than most preachers ever had. One auditorium set that seats 12,500 12, people. That's a big auditorium. I'd want a sound system in there personally, but uh, nonetheless, it's a big place. And they shut down that building and his other auditoriums. And so uh, instead of giving up, they went outside and started having services all around the, the, the New Mexico, uh, the Mexican, what city am I thinking of, Dan? Mexico City, pretty simple, huh? Mexico City went all around that town and held services. And during that year, God blessed that church more than they'd ever been blessed in the past because he's not confined to a room. You can't, you can't box him in. Amen? He's capable. 
And so that's what Caleb said, 85 years old, and he's still a warrior. Now, if I get to be 85 and I get up and boast about my strength, you know I'm lying. Okay, just, I'm a politician then. My mouth's moving, I'm lying, all right? Because I, I, I hardly have the strength now that I had when I was five years ago. And it's amazing to me. I look in the mirror and I, these arms, that they were never mighty oaks, but now they're not even saplings, you know? And we're not going to talk about other body parts, all right? Going to leave that alone, all right? But the truth is, we're just, we're not what, I'm not what I was five years ago. And my clothes don't fit like they used to. I have to, I have to cinch my belt all the way as far as I can get it to hold my pants up. I'm, it's getting so bad, I'm about to start wearing suspenders. That's bad. You know, you know you're old when you have a belt and suspenders on. Amen. But I understand why it has to be done, because they can't keep up with it. And it's not, it's not fat that's leaving. The fat still's hanging there. It's muscles. <laughs> Amen. You're not used to preachers telling the truth. What's your problem? All right. <laughs> but honestly, for a man to stand up and say, I can go out to war and come back for more just as I did when I was a young man. Boy, that is God's hand on a man. So if God did that for me, well, if you did what Caleb did, we might be surprised what God might do for us. But he's still a warrior. And according to Joshua 15, when he went into the land of promise and took the mountain God gave him, he drove the giants out of the land because God was with him. It wasn't Caleb it was the God of Caleb who did the work. The key to his success and the blessing of God, you read it three times. You know what it is. He wholly followed the Lord his God. He wholly followed. Now you've read that before and I've read it before. I got to thinking about that one day. As far as I know, this is as original as any one of my sermons ever get. Brother Keene's always on my case to write a book. I said, Brother Keene, the footnotes would contain more pages than the, because the, I haven't had an original thought since the day I was born. Everything I know I was taught or I read. And for me to write a book and all the foot, it would exhaust me. I, after the first, first chapter, I'd have 300 pages. So there's no way I'm ever going to write a book. I know it's impossible because I want to be fair about it. You know, I'm, I'm a product of a lot of people's investment. Yeah. And I know it. But this is as close to original as I ever get, okay? Because I've never read this sermon anywhere. I never heard about it. So if you've read a sermon like this sermon, somebody stole it from me, all right? <laughs> all right. I want to talk to you today about the testimony, the testimony that God expects every one of us to have. And that testimony is, I have followed the Lord my God. I have followed the Lord my God. Wholeheartedly followed my Lord. This is a threefold testimony in this, in this passage to his character and his love for God. Number one, it's the testimony of his heart. Notice verse 8. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So it doesn't matter what other people did. It didn't matter what the report from other of my brethren were. You know, and there's nothing harder, nothing harder than watching your brethren 
stray away and forget what they once taught you. That's hard. I teach people how to, you know, to stand alone. But, you know, the hardest place to stand alone is in a crowd of Christians. But we have to learn to do it. If we're going to wholly follow after the Lord our God, we're not following after men. You know, I learned at the age of 15 that the arm of flesh will fail you. My daddy was a preacher. He raised three boys to be preachers. He walked out of the house at 15, when I was 15. My brother was 11 and 9. And he walked out and turned his back on us and turned his back on God. That was Sunday night. He read the, he read the resignation at church. He went out and got in his car. And we got home and his stuff had been taken out of the closet. He was out of the drawers. He was gone. Came back later for his tools and the other things. Three weeping boys and a weeping mama. It was like we didn't exist. Now, I know better now. I know what it was doing to him. But he was so backslidden on God, he couldn't see straight. Couldn't think straight. You know, I learned a long time ago, sin is insanity. Sin doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely crazy. Nothing good ever came from sin. Nothing, 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 nothing ever, ever, ever came good from sin. Nothing. What a heartbreak it was to watch that happen. My mom loaded up the car Wednesday night. We went right back to church. She kept on serving God. And uh, I love her for it. I thank God for her. But, you know, to have the testimony that when my brethren left, and made the heart of the people melt. I wholly followed the Lord my God. What a glorious privilege to have a clear conscience before God. Now you and I both realize how difficult that is. I read Paul's testimony. Paul uh, in Acts 23, beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now you think about Paul. He's lived in good conscience before God until this day. You realize his conscience was a little messed up for a while. Because he killed Christians and thought he did God's service. His conscience was clear while he murdered Christians. That's a little scary, isn't it? But he thought he was doing God's work. You know, you should never be surprised at how your conscience can trick you, but I'm good. that's another sermon. But Paul said, I've lived in all good conscience. He said in Acts 24, I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. In Romans 9, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. In 2 Corinthians 11, our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we've had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you, word. He wrote in 1 Timothy 1.5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. Verse 19 of the same chapter, holding faith and a good conscience with some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Hebrews 13, pray for us for we trust 
We have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Somebody defined a good conscience as the knowledge that when an offense to God or man is made known to me by the Holy Spirit, I do my dead level best to make it right. A good conscience is not the knowledge that you've wronged no one. But it's the knowledge that when God convicted you of a wrong, you did what God led you to do to make it right. Somebody wrote years ago, when man says he has a clear conscience, it must mean he has a bad memory. And the only clear conscience you can get is by taking it to Calvary and making it right. As the Bible teaches us, Jesus taught us to do. The conscience is a divine gift every one of us ought to cultivate, every one of us ought to protect. How dangerous it is to ignore the warnings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit through our conscience. I'm not going to preach this part of the sermon too much because you guys know all this and you've preached it yourself. But there's a danger of, of searing the conscience according to Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're living in the days when some depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. They speak lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And there's also the danger of defiling your conscience. Under the pure, he wrote, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and their conscience is defiled. And there's the danger of alienation. People past feeling that give themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And you say, well, Christians can't do that. Well, you must know some I don't know. Because they can. And if you're not careful, you will too. How sweet it is to have a clear conscience and a heart that wholly follows after the Lord your God. I read a, a poem. The more I read it, I realized it was from a humanistic standpoint, so I scratched it out of my sermon. But then I remembered a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote probably 300 years ago or more. I want a principle within of jealous godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. I want the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire, to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. From thee that I no more may part, no more the goodness thy goodness grieve, the filial all, the fleshly heart, the tender conscience give, quick as the apple of an eye. O oh God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh, and keep it still awake. Almighty God of truth and love, to me thy power impart. The mountain from my soul remove the hardness from my heart. Oh, may the least omission pain my reawakened soul. And drive me to that blood again that makes the wounded whole. I want a principle within that makes sin as nasty as it is and has a tender heart. That was the testimony of Caleb's heart. Caleb said, I was presented with wrong. I was presented with the wrong path. But by God's grace, I wholly followed after the Lord my God. That was the testimony of his heart. But it was also the testimony of Caleb's leader, his spiritual authority. Moses' testimony in verse number 9, Thou hast wholly 
followed the Lord thy God. You know, I, I believe what the Bible teaches is that one day we pastors, and I've been a pastor, I'm, I'm not a pastor anymore. My wife, she gets confused about that. The other day she said, have all the preacher's wife stand up. She wasn't going to stand up. She said, well, you're not a pastor anymore. I said, I'm still a preacher. Get up. <laughs> But I understand how she feels, you know. I'm just going to be real honest with you about my heart. The first year or so that I wasn't pastoring anymore, I felt relief. But now I feel something different. And it's not just the preaching. I miss the preaching. I told Brother Ware and I talked about this the other day. And, uh, but I miss people. I miss being in on people's lives and weeping when they weep and laughing when they laugh and seeing them grow, go forward for God. I, I miss getting, getting to see that on a regular basis and knowing that I had some part by God's grace and the Holy Spirit's power in seeing that happen. I miss that. Now that doesn't mean that I'm going to go candidate somewhere. For one thing, I realize if you call a 72-year-old man to be your pastor, you're not planning on hanging on him long, you know. It's, it's, it's just a vocation. It's a, it's a bivocation then, you know, because he's not going to be around that long. Probably it might be a good thing. I could get him all stirred up and then, you know, go to heaven. It'd be all right, wouldn't it? But nonetheless, uh, I, I take seriously the fact that one of these days I'm going to stand before God, and there are things I'm going to answer for. For people. I'm going to give an account. And I'm not going to be able to do it with joy with some folks. Other folks I'm going to stand before God and with tears. Recount how they lifted up the cause of Christ. How they lifted the hands of their pastor. How they prayed for one another. How they served God. There have been some men in my background. Uh, in the churches I've pastored. That I wish I had a church full of them. I decided if I had a church full of them, number one, I'd get lazy. And number two, I wouldn't have anything to do. Because I really don't have to do a lot to keep some people straight. You know, when they're straightened out, these men I'm talking about, when they got straightened out, they stayed straight. You know what I mean? They didn't wander around the pasture. They just wholly followed the Lord their God. And I'd like to have a church full of them, but I realize that's not what a pastor does. Pastors are not supposed to spend their time comforting the flock. They're supposed to spend their time chasing the strays. Hmm? Well, got quiet in here because none of us want to say amen. That's right because, you know, all of us feel like failures at times in the work. There's no doubt about it. But I know in this day of disillusionment with authority figures and self-will and spiritual anarchy, little thoughts given to what authority thinks. But you know, someday we're going to stand before the Lord and those who have been in authority over us, you guys know this. This is the part of the sermon that you can preach to your people. You know, because of course you don't, you don't need it. Do you have a spiritual authority? I think, I think all of us better realize the man, remember that, that uh, the, the uh, centurion said to Jesus, I too am a man under authority. I, I never forget that. I never forget that. I ask God to help me remember, I too am a man under authority. I answer to a higher power. I answer to a God who placed me where I was, a God who gave me the authority I have. And I'm going to answer to him. I'm going to answer to governmental leaders. 
the authority I, how I treated their authority. And I, I thought about that when I was on my way here. I almost slowed down. <laughs> you know, I, I was keeping up with traffic. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't doing this. But none of us were doing 65. You know, if you're doing 65, people get behind you and blink their lights and honk their horns and do all kinds of things. But, you know, that's still supposed to be the law. It always convicts me, but not enough to stop speeding. Oh, sorry. I'm with a bunch of Methodists today. You can't, you can't confess that. You'll lose your salvation. All right. <laughs> but the truth is, we're under, under the, the authority. That's why, that's why when we have a problem with government, our attitude to them makes a big difference. God, you know, God can't do anything with them if we're not right. He has to pick on his kids first. He already said judgment begins at the house of God. And so when our attitude's wrong toward authority and we go to authority to try to straighten them out, God said, wait a minute. We got some work to do on you first, bub. God didn't call you bub. Okay, well, anyway, you know what I mean. Authority in the home. Children ought to be taught to obey their parents. I heard a lady the other day, her kid was being uh, disrespectful of authority. And she started counting. Not one, two, three. She went five, four, three, two. I, I went around the corner. I wanted to see if the kid was going to <laughs> take off when she got to zero. But no, he just kept doing what he was doing. She started all over again. I know this, that boy's going to go to kindergarten, and he's not going to have how to, to uh, count because everything starts with five and goes down from there. Yeah. Instead of one, two, three, it was five, four, three, two, one. I was waiting for blast off, you know, but my dad did not count. I'm not saying he was ignorant, but he did not count. He said it once, and if you didn't straighten up, you answered for it. And you answered for it in different ways. And all of them were painful. Okay. But he meant business. When he said, do this, we did it. And boy, it's sad. I, I go to Walmarts and places like that, and I, I know I'm there because I can hear the screaming kids. I just want to go up to the mother and say, Could, you want me to talk to him for a minute? Amen. You know, I really do. <laughs> now you say, what would you tell him? That's, you start screaming in here, and I'll tell you what I would tell them. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you from the pulpit because you, you wouldn't believe me anyway. So, But the truth is, authority. We know the Bible talks in Proverbs about a son's relationship to his parents. And uh, boy, I can tell you, there's nothing more exciting in life than have a son that walks with God. Nothing greater as a daddy than to know that uh, my grandchildren are all saved and know the Lord. Now, they're not perfect. They couldn't be perfect and be a Martin or a Jessup. Amen. But the truth is, uh, their attitude toward authority is what it ought to be. Then in the church, fellas, you can really hammer this part here because you've got verses behind it. Obey them that have the rule over you. That's pretty plain. That was, that was like children obey your parents in the Lord. I think that's the only verse my dad knew that was applied to home, was children obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And I thought, what about that verse before it says, fathers provoke now your children to wrath? <laughs> what about that one? 
I, I think if we're going to teach our kids to remember, remember that verse, we ought to remember the other one. Anyway, moving right along. I don't get amens on that either. It's like when I preach on the home, men just sit and look at me. So don't, don't invite me into your house, your church for a family conference, okay? You won't like the results. All right, because I believe you. If you don't have a happy home, fellas, go look in the mirror. Because you're a type of Christ. And Christ gave himself for me when I was wicked. Laid his arms out on the cross and died and said, this is how much I love you. Mm. So if you're not doing that for your family and they're not happy, you, you know why now. Because I like what the preacher said last night. If we'd pray like we ought to be praying, number one, God will work on our hearts and then God could work through us in our homes. And uh, fellas, we have a special, and ladies, we have a special requirement from God that we have our home in order before him. Because if you can't get, make your children behave, you can't rule the house of God. Amen. That's sad, but it's truth. It'd be a great privilege to stand before God someday and say, I followed the Lord holy. Now, number three, it was the testimony of the God of heaven. Verse 14. God gave Hebron or Hebron to Caleb. And it's his to this day, the writer says, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Now that's the eternal record. Oh, forever, O oh Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That's, that's an eternal record. In eternity, we can turn to that verse and read about a man that God says, this man wholly followed me. That's quite a record. All of us have a record. Job said, my record is on high. Paul said in Philippians, God is my record. Romans 14 teaches every one of us give an account to God. I stand before you a fallible, failing, fault-filled man of flesh. I can't trust my heart of flesh, but God saved me. And he gave me a new heart. And he dwells in me by his spirit, and he knows me. And my only plea is the blood and the righteousness of my Savior, imputed by a God whose choice work is mercy. And grace. I memorized Psalm 103 many years ago. One of my favorite verses is verse 14. He knoweth our frame. He remembereth we are dust. Hmm. But that same book, that same chapter says, Like as a father pitieth his children. So the Lord pities those who fear him. Caleb is a perfect man. That's not what I'm saying. Only one perfect man. The God man. Christ Jesus. But his greatest desire was to wholly follow after the Lord. And God looked at his heart and God declared this man wholly follows the Lord. It's like looking at David and saying this is a man after my own heart. Anytime you read that. You know what the devil says? Yeah but what about this? You know, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about his not raising his children right and having children rebel against him? What about that? Well, devil, when you and I get to know what a man's heart is, we'll have a way to 
talk about that. But as far as I can tell, there's only one who knows what's in our heart. And David was a man after God's heart. Even in failure. Well, that's the testimony of a man's heart that follows after God. Charles Spurgeon, in conclusion of a message on our change of masters from Romans six eighteen, writes, We need no more of your nominal Christians, your Laodicean Christians, lukewarm, whom my master spews out of his mouth. We need more men on fire with love, all over consecrated, intensely devoted, who by the slavery from which they have escaped and by the liberty in which they have entered are under bond to spend and be spent for the name of Jesus till they fill the earth with his glory and make all heaven ring with his praise, who wholly follow the Lord their God. May that be our testimony. Father, we thank you for these men of the Old Testament who without the indwelling Holy Spirit had a heart that sought after you. What is our excuse if we do not? We have the Holy Spirit of God, and Lord, help us today to determine by your grace that in these days in which we now live, we'll not use them as an excuse for wandering away from the path on which God has put us. We pray your blessing on us now. In Jesus' name, amen.